Rodney Branch loves the trumpet. It's been something of a compass for his life's journey. Over 60 years ago in the Southside Englewood neighborhood where he grew up, young Rodney heard a neighbor kid making noise with a trumpet that he'd picked up at the nearby Salvation Army resale store. Rodney wanted that trumpet, and he later bought it for $2, and he learned to play it and play it well. He had no idea back then that his musical skills would win him a spot in an army band. And he certainly never figured that the trumpet would take him to a place he was loath to go, Vietnam. But that's what happened. In 1967, Private Rodney Branch was sent to the jungles of the Nam, where his mission was to play taps for soldiers killed in action. It was a job he would perform countless times on bases and in remote landing zones, places that were not immune to firefights and mortar attacks. This is the story of Rodney Branch and his trumpet. There was a kid going up and down the neighborhood, blasting on his horn. <laughs> it was just a lot of noise, and he, he couldn't play anything, but I, I went out there and I saw it. And he was just having a ball, making all that racket. But I knew that I sure would like to have that horn. (laughs) And I did approach him and asked him if he wanted to sell it. And he says, no, no, I don't want to sell it. I guess he was having too much fun with it at that point. (laughs) I sure wanted that horn. I asked him again. He said, no, no. So he went off. I don't know if it was that day or the next, but he came back and he asked me, uh, you still want, still want the trumpet? I said, yes. He says, well, you know. I said, what, what do you want for it? And he says, $2. $2. Well, I didn't have $2. I, you know, I was just didn't have $2, so I wanted it. So I went and asked my grandmother, for two dollars. And she said, what's it for? And so I want to buy this trumpet from this guy. And she says, hmm. She knew I was uh, interested. And so she gave me the two dollars. And I found him and gave him money and he gave me the trumpet. And now I'm going up and down blasting through the neighborhood and making a lot of racket. But I really wanted to, play. So eventually, I found myself hooked up with Lion and Healy. There were several kids on the block who took piano lessons there, and they'd come back with the big folders with the music in it and all of that. You know, I expressed that interest that I wanted to sign up at Lion and Healy, and I did get into the, the Young People's Band program. And uh, I remember the instructor's name was Mr. Gilbert. I'd get on the L, ride downtown, and got off right off in front of Lion and Healy off the L, and uh, took music lessons. And it was very basic stuff, of course, but um, everybody enjoyed it, and I learned quite a bit. The correct way, I kept playing and I kept taking the lessons, and uh, that was very helpful. But then I grew up, 
I put it on the side for a while, did other things. The war was raging as I got older, and I kept getting little inferences or something in the mail about joining the services. You know, they wanted men. And I said, I want to be in the band, but I know you just couldn't get drafted and then say what you want. So I went and saw an Army recruiter on East 71st Street in Chicago, and the guy told me pretty much the same thing. You know, uh, you just can't sign up and tell us to put you in the band. No, you have to have some kind of talent, some kind of protocol going here. So he said, well, what we will do is uh, we will send you for an audition at Fort Sheridan. You'll go up there and they'll listen to you and see if you know you're actually uh, military band material. So I was, I was very happy with that, that we could get that far. So I'd go back home and I'd tell them, yeah. And they, they were pleased with that. This is your family? Yeah. They're happy with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the day finally comes around when the audition is to be. And I had told them before, but everybody kind of forgot about it. So I didn't have anyone to uh, escort me to Port Sheridan. I'd never been up there. But they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't go, blah, blah. They gave me the money and everything and told me how to get there. So how'd you get on a train? I got on the L first, left the south side, got downtown to the train station, told me how to get to the right train and everything. And it went north, and I told the conductor where I wanted to get off. And he saw to it that I got off at the right stop. I had to take a cab over to the base. And when I got there, I'm thinking with my young mind that I'm going to have to audition in front of the entire band. I didn't know how auditions ran. And that just scared me to death because I knew that they were just fine musicians and all of them, mm. something like that. So I said, well, you've come this far. You can't go back now. you got to go home and tell them something. So I got in there, and to my surprise... The band wasn't there. There was one man waiting for me, Sergeant Somebody. And you Rodney Branch? Yes. And he said, well, the band is out working on some job somewhere. So, um, you know, I'm going to audition you. And he asked me, well, have you had lunch? I said, no. So he said, you go to the mess hall and get yourself some lunch. And then I find my way over there, and I'm looking at all these military people and... <laughs> all in uniform, and I said, wow. <laughs> so, and I sit down, and I could hardly eat. And uh, I'm saying, I'm starting to second-guess myself now. What am I doing? <laughs> Why did I make this trip? I said, well, you have to go through with it because your family's going to want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't say, well, I, I chickened out and I forget the whole thing. No. <laughs> I finished some food. And then I go back to the rehearsal hall. One sergeant, he puts up some, uh, no, he asked me to play, uh, play this scale. Play B flat scale, play this scale, that scale. And I knew some of the basic ones and I fluffed some of the other ones. And he says, well, mm -hmm. okay, you need work on that. 
because I had memorized every single one of a lot of them. And he said, well, let's, um, let's see if you can read. So he pulls out some sheet music and he puts up on the stand The Preacher by Horace Silver. And I had that very same piece of music in my room on, on the stand. So you knew the song. I knew it backward and forward. Yes. And I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and I knocked it down. I just knocked it down, knocked it down. basic training we will send you to the military school of music in Virginia and I said to myself wow thank you that's just fine because I knew enough and I could play well enough to get through the school went back home I had the papers and I was just walking on air when I got home I said I was successful here because when I get out of basic, I'm going to be polished up at the school. place it was. Not only Army had some Air Force, Navy contingent, of course, and whoever else, maybe Marines, I don't know. And we lived in barracks, and we played and practiced every day. Every day. And they were trying to teach you to be a military musician. If you were kind of failing they would put you on a mandatory practice schedule, which I was put on with a lot of other guys. And you have to report to the practice room, and they had just rows and rows of booths, soundproof almost, you know, where they could, you could practice and you weren't bothering anybody else. And they had a man sitting at the end of the hall, and he wanted to hear some practicing coming out of that booth. If he didn't, and he warned you, and still didn't, you were on report. You are risking getting kicked out of here. They were no nonsense. I got that stuck in my head, and I went in there and went to work. And when I was done, and when they were done with me, I knew every scale, major and minor, with their arpeggios at the drop of a hat. That's how serious I was, because I said, I'm not going home a failure. I'm not going home to be ridiculed. I'm not going home so they can say, whoa, how did Rod make it in the school? No, he got, he flunked out. No, 
No, I, could, I, I couldn't have been more serious. So I locked all of that in my head. And then when the day came that I was to audition, boom, boom, I knocked them all down. Boom, boom, boom. Knew them all. Knew every scale, everything. And I said, oh, they said, okay. One day, my name was called and several other soldiers' names was called and said, report to the commandant's office. And we all were looking at each other and said, well, what did you do? You know, we thought we'd done something bad. And I didn't do anything. And why do they want us? And we just couldn't figure out what we were doing there. So we finally got up to the man's office. He called us all to attention. And he said, gentlemen, you have all graduated. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. We looked at each other and we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. He said, go back to the barracks, pack your bags. Here are your orders, all made out. And catch the first thing smoking out of here. And that's exactly what I did. And we were just stunned. Well, you took your playing very seriously. Yes. But so did your instructors, because the whole notion of music and the military is about morale, and you can't fail on that level. Yes, that is correct. I learned that hard practice works, <laughs> you know. Right. And the fear of them telling us, you know, if you flunk out of here, there's only one place for you. That's Vietnam. Hearing about the war and the bad things happening, and man, we don't want to go there. But you know, we didn't have any choice in the matter. But so after graduation, then your immediate next step is Redstone Arsenal. That was my first Alabama assignment. Went home and told them that that's what was in the orders. I was all down about it. As my grandmother told me, she said, they always send the colored boys to the South. <laughs> she said, but that's where your family is. And I'm still, you know, I'm thinking back when I was 11, on being on that farm, I didn't know anything about Redstone Arsenal or anything then, you know, what is that? But as it worked out, it was fabulous. The 55th Army Band, was just like a regular job. So you're in the army, you got your horn, yeah. the lap of luxury, right? You're doing your music thing. Yes. And you've got mentors and people that you look up to yes. who are telling you this is what you need to work on, here are some right. skills. Right. So you're you're cool. I was good. I was good. And uh, until the, the day I got those orders, I knew that we had sent guys to the NAM before, you know, like the bandmasters retail letters. But I didn't, for some reason, I didn't think it could be me. <laughs> well, tell me how that order came down to you. I think we were in rehearsal. And some guy came running down the hall, Branch has got orders. <laughs> Branch is going to the NAM. You know, shouting it out. And I, this, this is how you find out you're going to Vietnam? Because yeah. some guy in the band is running? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't call me in the office to say, well. Here's your orders. No, no, that's not how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody went, oh, you know. 
Oh, what did what did Rodney Branch do? Well, I sat there trying to absorb this. I actually thought that well, did the bandmaster do this on purpose? <laughs> you know? I mean, I know they needed guys over there and stuff, but uh, just crazy thoughts went through my head. It started to sink in, and the next thing I know, um, I was packing my bags, headed home for a 30-day leave. Then I had a assignment date to, to be there, and I didn't want to leave, frankly. You know, I was having a great time there. But I knew that at some point, I was going to be stationed somewhere else probably. But I never thought it would be the NOM. That 30 days went by like 30 seconds. The next thing I know, I was on a plane. In the blink of an eye, I was landing at Cameron Bay. When we landed, we all looked out the window and said, geez, this is a lot of sand out there. You know, what kind of place is this? We were all kind of in shock. And just absorbing it and letting it sink in our head the first few hours. And we think we stayed down there about two or three days, getting organized and finding out where you're going to go. And to make it worse, like I said, they had a loudspeaker out there that you could listen to actual battles. I don't know if they cooked it up or if it was real but it was from a chopper. And you could hear machine guns going off and all that kind of stuff. I said, that's really making us feel good. This is to prepare you. I guess. I guess so, but we never heard anything like that. So we were all second-guessing ourselves. Like, damn, what have I got into now? You know, that's the way I was feeling. So I could have done other things, but had I been drafted, I probably would have wound up in the same place. And you wouldn't have had a horn. Right. So I thought about that. I couldn't get to pick what I was going to do. They send you off to Camp Evans. Well, the first camp was at Ankei. Okay. That was the first camp. And it was a pretty well-built-up camp. And uh, we were going around the different places playing this and that standard stuff. And from that camp, the entire 1st Cavalry unit packed up ship and was moved north. We had to pack up everything. Everything went in the C-130s, flew up north, landed, and we looked around and said, holy Jesus, there's nothing but tents here. There's no buildings, <laughs> you know. This is uh, the real deal here. Uh, you have an M-16. Yes. You know how to shoot. You went through basic. Yes. But when you're in Vietnam, do you know that your function is going to be to play the horn, to play the trumpet. Yes. Yeah, that, that is my MOS. Mm-hmm. And that is basic duty when they say that's what we want you to do. Play for a ceremony here, or you go out on this LZ and play taps for this unit or that unit. You know, it was at the general's call. But otherwise, we were working on whatever. They said we were work crew. But we had some rehearsals for things. We worked a lot. And getting used to living in the tent. It it took a while to get used to all of that. Tell me how it would work when there would be a casualty on the battlefield, a fatality, and you would be called to go to wherever in the field, landing zone. Yes. You get your horn out. Mm -hmm. You play taps. Yes. And they would have uh, sometimes some kind of ceremony there. There would be a firing squad 
and we would do all the proper things for their dead. When that was over, we jumped back on the chopper, whatever, and hid back to base camp. How many times were you called upon to do that? I lost a count. It was quite a few. It was quite a few. One of the last ones was um, when I was working with Chaplain Samuel Horde and we were in away. This was some time after the uh, big battle, and we had gone into way before, and we, I was apprehensive about that. He says, oh, it's safe now. It was, I think it was the South Vietnamese Military Day or something like that. And here we are marching down the main street in way, playing whatever, and uh, we were nervous. Everything went well, got back to base camp. But I still had to go back to do that job with the chaplain. This is to play for another yes. funeral? Yes. And uh, I was, we were all thinking, well, this is going to be pretty routine. Get in there, the job goes fine. I mean, it's time to leave. And we had a little small convoy back to base camp. But before we get started, I mean, everybody's got in the vehicles. I'm in the rear vehicle, the last Jeep. There's the Perfume River. The soldier next to me in the middle is crowded enough in that Jeep. I had my trumpet case sitting on top of a huge steel box, and it was sealed carrying a rabbit dead dog. They had to properly dispose of it so they didn't spread the rabies. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't gone 10 feet, and all of a sudden, brrr, <laughs> I look out on my left and I just see these holes tearing into the road, and they're deep. And everybody else is jumping out of the Jeep, and it stunned me. You know, I got to jump out that way because I can't get over all this junk. And I said, man, those are big holes. And one was meant for my head if it had lifted the gun up higher. But I finally jump out there, run around the back of the Jeep. I'm taking cover. It blasting away. They silenced the fire, and a ceasefire was called. But when I get around there, I look up, and there's Chaplain Horde. And he's got his M16, and, you know, and he looks at me, and I look at him straight in the eye, and he's like, well, uh, I didn't shoot anybody, but uh, <laughs> I, uh. <laughs> and I said, I didn't say a word to him, but I, I kept wondering. Gee, did he, is he going to kill somebody? This is an awkward moment. A man Very of the cloth with a lethal weapon in his hands. Yes. But oh, he, he had a gun. He's he just carried a rifle. He's under assault. He's under yeah. attack. But for a chaplain, I don't know about the other chaplains. I never met any others. <laughs> but I believe this chaplain was going to do you if, if it meant going home. He was ready. And whether he was firing or not with the others, I was around there to see that. Maybe he was. It was just awkward. It was very awkward. Tell me about the assignments when you are to go to whatever location and play taps. Mm-hmm. A very somber, highly emotional moment yes. that you did countless times. Yes, yes. And did, did you did you know on most every occasion or some occasions 
who you were playing for, the circumstances of their deaths? No, no. Many of the places, in fact, just about all of them I had never been before on different LZs. One in particular, I can't remember the name of the LZ, but man, when I landed there, it was out in nowhere. And I say, geez, I just wouldn't want to be stationed on this sucker. Every time I take off from one of these places, I can look in their faces and see, boy, I sure would like to be going back too. Anything outside of the camp and the safety of the camp was just a risky business. I want to say one thing about a duty I got. We got hit really bad, heavy mortars. And that night, I just happened to be on the line myself in a tower on some far end of the camp. And when you had that duty, uh, everything you need is up in the tower. You know, we've got machine guns, grenade launchers, everything. And you climb way up in there and had a floodlight turn on. and It was like a prison guard or something, you know. I was in that tower one night, and that's the night that the camp was really hit hard with mortars. And one of those mortars found its way into the ammunition dump. And that was uh, located right next to the runway. All night into the day, I, I could not get relieved and I knew it was bad because nobody came to relieve us. Just explosion after explosion after explosion, lighting up the night sky, which went into day. And I kept wondering, boy, how many got killed here? And what's, what's going on? And it was just hours later before some young soldier comes up and relieves me, and I can go back to see what happened. I get back, the tents are knocked down, explosions are still occurring from the ammo dump. At some point there, I'm called together with a couple of other guys to stand before the commander, Mr. Barner. He said he had a job for us and to report to the runway. So we get over there and we looked at the runway and the runway was just loaded, loaded with unexploded munitions, howitzer shells that blew up out of the ammo dump, come down, bam, landed on the runway. They had something they use in the Army called a canister. It's a howitzer shell that's loaded with little nails with wings on it. And when you fire that, it's like 10,000 nails with wings, shoot, get you. I think they said it was banned by the Geneva Convention. I don't know what they were doing with it, but that blew up. And it came down and all those little nails stuck in the runway. That had to be removed. You would have thought they would have sent ample men to get this done quickly. Three of you. And I'm one of them. And your assignment is to pick up unexploded yes. ordnance. Yes. And what do you have to pick it up with? Sandbags. It was so hot you couldn't pick up the, the howitzer shell because it was still hot. So we're basically in our skins up top, but the darn howitzer shells were so hot we had to use sandbags so we wouldn't burn our stomachs. And I guess somebody assured them that, well, these can't explode again if you drop them. Really? 
<laughs> and we looked at each other. We concluded that this is like a suicide mission. Did you clean it up? Had to. Yes. And we were out there for hours. And you didn't have any sleep the night before? No. Now, that's the bad part. I say, you got a man out here that's half sleep, been on duty. He didn't care. That's the Army. That's the service. Maybe at that moment it's time to say, you know, guys, we're in the band here. <laughs> what the heck's going on? Maybe that's why they sent me. <laughs> Maybe why. We got all that stuff and moved it to the side of the runaway for the proper ordinance people to disarm it. And I guess they didn't want to send them because they, they couldn't replace them. You know, I thought of that. Let me bring you back to your MOS here. Yes. You're out in the field on landing zones and you, you've got to play taps. Yes. And... You know, it, it could be seen as being a routine thing, maybe even dispassionate, but it's not a dispassionate piece of music. Mm -hmm. It's played reverently. Yes. And you cannot, you cannot make a mistake. That's right. Because if you do, people don't remember playing taps. That's they right. remember your, your mistake. That is correct. That is correct. So I did that one time, and that was in the States when I was at a funeral and it was snow and cold and I started out with the wrong, you know, but I, I knew all the tricks, you know, but I caught it and everything was fine after that. But I, I learned so that, that from was that. One time you made a mistake. Yes. Yes. Every time after that, they don't want to hear excuses. They want perfect. So I made myself perfect. I would practice a bit, I'd keep warm, I'd blow on the mouthpiece, everything I needed to do. I never messed up on after that. But you put yourself under some pressure because you know you've got to hit it. Yes. you got to nail it every time. Every time. Every time. They don't want to hear, oh, it was cold, or whatever, <laughs> beast stung me, whatever. No, they don't hear that. Did anyone at any point in time ever come up to you after one of the services and say, thank you, great job? Yes. Yes, they did. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that, and I thanked them, and um, that was a good thing, you know. Yeah. But as long as you played it right. <laughs> as long as you played it right, it's okay. Right. Yeah, That's correct. Apart from playing taps mm -hmm. and being under under artillery bombardment from mm -hmm. time to time, yeah. mortars coming in. You also saw some really awful stuff. Yes. Uh, things that are, I, I presume, permanently ingrained in your memory. Yes, yes. You had a hospital situation where you have a bunch of guys being treated and they're just coming off the battlefield. Yes. So you've got, you've got images stuck in your head, don't you? Yes, I do. The wounded, that's the worst. I mean, we knew people were getting badly wounded and all of that, but I had never seen it until that point. That guy on the stretcher, man, he was... This is one occasion when you're at the hospital and he's right. been badly wounded. Right, he just in. come off the chopper, just flew him in. Okay. And uh, had him lying on his stomach, uncovered. And I really don't think he made it. I mean, he didn't have any rear end. 
Uh, shot blown up, I don't know. But it was gone. Do you still think about those things? Yes. Yes, I do. I try and put it out of my mind. But, um, no, some things never go away. started counting the days that uh, I had left and hoping I would make it. And when you get short, you get very nervous. You don't want to go out of the camp, won't do anything, but you don't have any choice. You gotta go where they say and do what they say. So people get really jumpy. Of course. Do you remember the last time you played taps in the field of battle? Was it close to your departure date? I don't know how close it was, but I remember the last one. I was on an LZ, was flown in, but it was so secluded, it was out there. And I remember when the chopper came back to pick me up, it didn't stay. <laughs> it dropped me off and come back, it didn't stay. I looked at the guys when I was getting on the chopper, and man, they wanted to go too. They wanted to go with me. Bring me home. Yeah. Back to base camp or somewhere, not in this hellhole. Because I looked around and that was the worst LZ I'd ever seen. You were on the 102nd Honor Flight Chicago mission. Yes, sir. And I wonder, why did you sign up for this? What were your hopes, your expectations? I didn't know a whole lot about it, but um, I said, here's a trip to Washington, and um, I would like to see the wall. You had not previously seen the wall? No, no. And I specifically wanted to see the wall to see my friend and neighbor, Dennis Archibald, who was on that wall. And I did get over there. And they had a lady assistant there. I told her what I was looking for, and she took me right to him. And Mr. Archibald was KIA in yes. Vietnam before you got there or uh, after? I found out that I was in country, and I just happened to get a hold of a copy of the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which listed the KIAs in it. And I was in the field at the time. And I started reading the names from Chicago. And when I saw Dennis Archibald, I knew it was him. He was a buddy from back in Chicago. 60th and LaSalle. In fact... Same neighborhood where you grew up. Yes. And I'm the godfather to his brother. Stood up for him at St. Martin's Church when he was baptized. So that moment when you see his name on the wall was very meaningful for you? Yes, yes. I have that etching. Did you bring it home with you? Oh, yeah. It's on my mantle right now, and it's going to find a prominent place. I'm getting a frame for it. During the ceremony when everyone gathers at the World War II Memorial, national anthem is sung, God Bless America, and then the playing of taps. Yes. And so, as always, 
Rodney Branch's ears are tuned up. Yes. And you're listening Absolutely. for this performance, right? Yes. Yes, and I was looking at the guy, and I was saying, now I know he's a professional or whatever, but he's not going to crack a note. I knew that. And he didn't. He, he did it. He nailed it. Yes, and that's what they want to hear. And uh, he did a fine job. Did and you talk to him afterwards? Uh, he came by my, I was sitting in the chair there, and I said something to him. I said, good job or something. Like but uh, he did a good job. And uh, I could have done it. <laughs> That's what I was saying. That's the way I played it. Yeah. Good. And it's true. 99.9% of the time, I played it like that until I did that one and then one. Well, we all came home kind of late that night. Didn't get home till two in the morning, which established a new, not to be desired record <laughs> for a late homecoming. <laughs> but your wife stayed, your wife of 52 years almost, yes. stayed, and so did a bunch of other people. Yes. And that kind of really made it just enormously rewarding that people yes. waited for their heroes to come home. Well, I appreciate it, and I loved it, and I'm glad she was there. I would have had to walk home. <laughs> no. For a musician in Vietnam to have encountered, experienced what you did, it's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It's it's not like you're over there in a recording booth. You're getting mortars. Everything's coming at you. You're seeing yeah. awful stuff. Yes. Yeah. And yes. you're in harm's way. Every day. Every day. A place you didn't want to go to, you ended up going to. Say, I'm not a, I don't shirk my duties or anything like that. But bad thoughts did enter my mind about how to get out of the country. And I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Because I, did, I, I thought, well, this, this is a mistake. But what stopped you? from doing something that... I could not bear what my family would think. I didn't want to be a coward or fake something to get out of the country. And guys did. I said, if, if I go down, I'll go down fighting. And guys did go down. They did. And some were in our band. Well, what you did was very meaningful, and I'm 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 glad on your on your Honor Flight Chicago trip to D.C. that you were able to make a connection with a friend whose name is on the wall. Yes. That's an important thing. Yes. And uh, and however late it was, it was still a genuinely wonderful welcome home. Yes. Glad we had that. I'm so glad we had it. Late, but I'll take it. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you. Been a joy. Oh, Been a joy. I appreciate it very much. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.